So we come together on the oppositor halfway through the Vasa. It's a good time to stop and review our practice. Vasa is a special time. We spend three months in one place with a lot of free time. Opportunity to really practice, develop the path. So it's our good fortune that we have this chance to practice. The Buddha in his wisdom left us this teaching which helps us or provides us with a way out of suffering, way of liberation or escape from suffering. And nowadays people always talk about the Buddhist teachings as Buddhism. What does Buddhism Buddhism teach? Of course the Buddha didn't talk about it as Buddhism. He said he teaches the Dhamma Vinaya, which is a good reflection just on the component parts of the practice, two supporting parts is the Vinaya, the, the training in Sila and the training in the monastic discipline, and this supports the arising of the Dhamma, bringing the mind to see truth, which is where the liberation from suffering comes. Noble Path, which is the framework, the, the different factors of this this path, this method that we use to train to practice. You can look at all the eight parts and see they all form an important. Each plays its important role to form a whole. They all arise in the in the heart, in the jitta. Whether you look at them as eight different component parts, or you reduce them down to three, sila, samadhi, panya, or you reduce them down to one, and just looking at the one path that guards over and is developed in the one mind. Eko mako, eko dhammo. This is what we're developing. 
you can see the importance of wisdom. I mean, the Eightfold Path begins with Samadhiti. Most of us are attracted to the Buddha's teachings because of the wisdom that we see in the way he described suffering and the way out of suffering, the way he explained the path of practice. So even though all these factors work together, you might say wisdom really comes first and leads the practice. And it's our blessing, our good fortune, we have the Buddha's words. Saves us a lot of time. If we were having to work out the way to practice by ourselves, we might just go around in circles and never really know where to go. But the Buddha's laid it out for us. We should reflect, use our minds, use our intelligence to reflect on these teachings and see how they affect us in daily life. And developing samadhiti and just reflecting on karma. We're learning to learn what is wholesome karma, what is unwholesome karma. Where does karma arise? It arises in our minds, intentions, negative, positive, wholesome, unwholesome. So the place of practice is always back to our own minds. Even if we're talking about sila or samadhi or panya. Learning, just learning to recognize what is a wholesome intention, what is an unwholesome intention. And training yeah, to bring up the wholesome yeah, as the most immediate, practical way to develop our minds, to experience more inner peace. Just training to let go of the unwholesome intentions is Samasankapa and Nekama Sankapa developing Nekama the abandoning of sensuality attachment or obsession with sense objects and the quality it brings up is Upeka sense of calm balance not attracted to, not averse to sense objects, just knowing sense objects as sense objects with their criminality. Not letting the mind always go out to sense objects, become obsessed, always thinking about them and wanting them, seeing their limitations, the limitations of the sensual realm and the pleasure that comes through our senses is always 
fading away, ceasing. It's not permanent, not lasting. Abhayapada Sankapa and non-ill will developing the intention of kindness, goodwill, non-ill will. Consciously bringing that up to abandon ill will, bring up goodwill. Ahimsa Sankapa and non-hatred and bringing up compassion understanding, empathy for oneself, for others, seeing we all wish to be free from suffering. And just using the simple reflection of Samaditi Samasankapa in daily life to train the mind, recognize skillful karma, unskillful. That obviously leads on into practice of sila, right action, right livelihood, right speech. For us as bhikkhus, it's keeping the vinaya. It's the recognition that we begin our practice from place of ignorance, misunderstanding truth. We still have suffering, so we need to train. So the Buddha gave us the Vinaya as a way of training body, speech and mind. Training to develop these skillful intentions. Leading us away from sense indulgence and obsession with the material world. Leading away from anger and conflict and hatred. Developing more contentment, more inner peace. All the Vinaya rules help with that. Even though it sometimes seem, seems like some kind of restraining harness that's sort of not letting us do what we want, go where we want, do what we want. If we can use the wisdom that the Buddha gave us and contemplate and see, it's, in the long run it's helping to just Turn the mind away from unwholesome intentions, bring up more wholesome intentions, bringing up the mindfulness that is required to do that, more awareness of our own minds in daily life. Practicing the Vinaya, you see, it involves a lot of small minor rules leading through to more serious of rules, more important rules, you might say. But the minor rules are important as well, based on the principle one one thing leads to another. So if we aren't aware, we're not aware of the role of the minor rules, then often we don't have enough restraint, wisdom, understanding to keep this, the more serious major rules. All the rules are training in training, uh, developing our qualities of hiriotapa. So 
shying away from negative tendencies, unwholesome tendencies, greed, anger, delusion. You might say developing an attitude that the little things matter, as little things can lead on to bigger things. So little things are important, even though they seem to be unimportant because we call them little little things, small things. You see the way Ajahn Chah taught, little things do matter. The small aspects of the core what are all valuable ways of training the mind to develop wholesome intentions and abandon unwholesome ones. And just the use of our requisites, how we obtain our requisites, how we use them, being careful, looking after what we have, looking after the monastery, being frugal, being truthful, being honest, and being sensitive to other people in the way we speak, the way we act and so on. The small things lead on or lead inwards as well. They train you train letting go of the small unskillful states of mind that might lead us to break these rules. That's training your mind to go on to uproot the very causes that might lead you to break rules. The greed, the anger, delusion. If you ask uh, monks who used to live with Ajahn Chah in the old days, He's always, when he's walk around the monastery, if he saw something that was of value that had been discarded in a rubbish pit, thrown aside like an old spittoon or an old kettle, or some building materials or something, something that still had some value, he'd always be picking things up, bringing them back to be used again or to be mended. And he, some monks found him a bit obsessive like that. They actually complained and thought he was being stingy, over-obsessed with using old things and not letting things go to waste. They didn't understand. He was just practicing frugality and taking care with small things. Others thought he was just fussy even a few pebbles sometimes when they built the Abozada Hall and they used pebble or stones that had been brought in to mix with sand and cement to make concrete. After all the work was done there were still pebbles lying around. Sometimes you'd just pick up the pebbles. Monks would be astonished. Why is he wasting his time picking up these pebbles? They're almost worthless. But knowing what they thought, he said, well, these pebbles aren't worthless. They weren't, didn't come from Wapapong. They had to be bought here. Somebody had to be paid to bring them here. Even a few pebbles, a few bits of gravel have a value. There's one who never overlooked small things because he could see the relationship, how care and attention with small things 
is very much a part of the practice and often we begin there as well. We can't uproot our greed, anger and delusion in one, one go. You have to start in small ways. You start with the small things first. And much of the Vinaya training, right speech, right action, is based on this principle. If we let the small things go, like we give in to unwholesome intentions, let them come out in our speech, our actions, then that habit can become established and then it's harder to avoid the more serious kinds of unwholesome behavior. So it's like a, a fence or a boundary that protects us. always training the mind in hiriyotapa and recognizing what is wholesome intention, what is unwholesome intention. And this is where we train in sati. It leads on to right effort and right mindfulness. You know, abandoning unwholesome negative intentions based in greed, anger, delusion. And bringing up the opposite. Bringing up mindfulness wisdom, equanimity, kindness, compassion. Ajahn Chao said when you train in the sila, train in the vinaya regularly, it naturally leads you to develop the qualities of a mind with samadhi, the firmness of mind. Because one's intentions, one's training in skillful wholesome intentions, the definition of samadhi is the continuous presence of wholesome states of mind. So the training in Vinaya is direct training in meditation, samadhi, mindfulness. develop simplicity, fewness of wishes, and ease of living. We don't need a lot to be satisfied. As bhikkhus, we can do that. It's very difficult to achieve that in the world with the pressures of society, culture, and having to earn a living, living in a lay life. Much more pressure as a bhikkhu we're The lifestyle is much more suited to just living simply so we can really work on the mind itself. Less pressure. If we can appreciate that point, then over time living as a bhikkhu, then the mind becomes lighter and freer and happier, more content. We're free from some of the burdens and the pressures of culture and society. It helps us to deal with uh, the fetters, you know, the first fetters of the ten fetters that bind us to the world, to samsara. Silas patabharamasa vichikicca sakaya ditti. When you give up to the vinaya and you start training in the vinaya, immediately you're starting to unloosen, unravel those fetters. You're, you're naturally bringing up 
reflections on the Dhamma, bringing up states of mindfulness, letting go of unwholesome states of mind. You're no longer taking just the worldly values, cultural values, values of society which may not be wholly based in Dhamma Vinaya. You're giving them up, you're taking Dhamma Vinaya, which is much more refined way of training the mind. Take that on as your guideline. So you're setting aside you know, some of our habitual beliefs and conditioning, superstitions, beliefs, habits, some aspects of Sita Bhatta Baramasa. learning to train the mind to investigate truth. We're using the Vinaya as a way just to calm the mind down enough. So there's enough clarity and enough refinement that we can investigate truth rather than just kind of going along out of habit with life, following cultural conditioning and beliefs we may have inherited or being passed to us from one person or another. This lifestyle, we can actually look directly at truth, learn from it, learn what is what, rather than just going on assumptions and guesswork, or just kind of blindly grasping at different beliefs and views about things. So we're starting to unravel Sila Bhatta Baramasa, starting to unravel Wichikicha. You know, when you begin practice, you have a lot of doubt. What is the right way of practice? What is the path? What is not? What is the right meditation object? What is not? And so on. In the end, you can all you can do is get down to the practice as a bhikkhu, as a novice, start keeping the precepts, following the training, developing mindfulness, understanding your own mind more. Little by little you're gaining experience, which gives you some confidence and helps you to overcome some of those doubts. Start to see, well, what really leads to more peace, more contentment, and what doesn't. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to really look what is conducive to a peaceful mind, what is giving rise to wisdom and what is not. Little by little then doubt starts to fade away. As doubts fade away, wrongly held beliefs and beliefs and attachments to views and things fade away then Mindfulness and wisdom operate a little bit better. There's more clarity, more understanding, so we can look back at ourselves in an unbiased way, with more equanimity. We can start looking at these candors, your body and mind, feelings, memories, thoughts, sense consciousness. The more calm, steady the mind becomes, the firmer the sati and the firmer the mindfulness, we can start looking in an unbiased way at this set of candors that we have. We can't help but start noticing 
and each dukkha anatta. You're just looking at the body when the mind is calmer, more peaceful. You just have to accept mm, this body is not something I can really own. I can't really make it do what I want. It can't give me the pleasure I want. It won't stay young. It won't stay healthy. It's constantly aging. Eventually I'm going to have to let go of it through death. Really it's something to be let go of, given up, that sense of ownership. We call them the five aggregates, but you could really call them the five lumps. The body is one lump. Earth, air, fire and water come together. It brings us a lot of headaches through our life, having to look after it and feed it, keep it happy. And in the end it just gives up on us, gets old and dies. As we train the mind, to look at that, reflect on the truth about the body, we have to start coming to that conclusion. It's not something to be grasped at as self. Naturally, all the world that we're involved with, the material things, the buildings, the land, the people, possessions of the same, the same truth applies. Ultimately, we can't hold on to anything. We can't keep anything as ourself. And the bhikkhu life helps us you know, directly you can see that day in day out that we can't grasp or hold on to anything. So we might as well let go. This is developing the samaditi with sati with samadhi. And the, the re, developing the right, correct attitude towards one's own body and mind. It's not to be grasped at as self. Feelings we can't control. We can't always command pleasure to arise when we want it, for as long as we want it, in the way we want it. When we're kind of unconsciously going around things and we tend to always be seeking pleasure and running away from pain. Well, as soon as we start to practice mindfulness, we're training ourselves, then you can see that's not really correct, is it? We can't always get pleasure. We can't always avoid pain. But we can be mindful of these things as feeling seeing feeling as feeling, knowing this is just the way things are according to conditions. And when pleasant experiences arise, there's pleasurable feeling. But there's no self in that. And just keep asking the question, is this really me? Is this mine, myself? Again, the conclusion comes up over and over again. This is not self, not to be grasped at. So the mind becomes stronger and doesn't just react to th different feelings of pleasure and pain all the time, but just knows them with awareness. So we don't 
get so uptight if we're feeling tired or we're sick or something unpleasant happens to us that we just know that experience as pain or painful and we don't get so caught up in seeking pleasure if it comes it comes if it doesn't it doesn't never mind because pleasure is just pleasure it's just a feeling we're not the sum total of our pleasure and pain it's just a delusion of self and the way the world conditions us is it's basically the more pleasure you get the better you are the more value you are or more worthy you are as a human being the more personal value you put on yourself the more pleasure you can have so we tend to associate that with being wealthy and having power the power to have more pleasure refined pleasures longer lasting pleasures any kind of pleasure that power, wealth, influence will bring us. But as soon as we contemplate this with mindfulness, we notice, mm, but in the end, pleasure is just pleasure. However much of it you have, it still just arises and passes away. It's impermanent, it's not self. Pain is the same. We don't have to always be running from pain or getting upset and reacting to pain we can also know it's just another kind of feeling in the end they have equal value and both arise pass away what we think about these things same thought we have so much trouble with thought especially when we begin meditation always complain we're thinking too much thinking about the wrong things scattered distracted or becoming bored or restless or dull or sleepy and so on but in the end thought formations are just thought formations just one candor another lump The more we contemplate this, develop mindfulness, contemplate this, we just see our oh, thought is just a thought. We don't have to follow it, we don't have to attach to it, grasp at it, just know a thought is a thought arising, passing away. In the end, all these factors of the Eightfold Path support each other. They arise and help to refine each other, improve each other. So it's not that we, they, they develop independently or we practice just one and ignore the others. They're all developing together. developing in the heart but obviously when they come to fruition then the mind is 
becoming one-pointed. So we can't develop samadhi, right? Samadhi without all the other factors in place to support that. They're all developed together in the heart and one, one thing supports the other so we can't miss out on any part of the path. We can't ignore bits we might feel we don't like or aren't important. Just concentrate on one and ignore another. Everything helps. Everything supports. Sila Samadhi Panya or Samaditi right through to Samasamadhi. Maybe it's too short a period to assess how practice is going after just a month and a half in a vasa. But generally we can look at our practice and see well what's happening in my mind day by day over a period of time. And generally we can reflect if we have more suffering arising and it's taking longer to sort it out, let go of it. And that's a sign maybe there's something lacking in the practice that we need to adjust or improve. Or if we can see, well, suffering still arises, but it doesn't last very long. We can solve it, we can sort it out, and the mind returns to a more of a state of calm. That's a, pro that's a sign that our well, practice is going in the right direction. We might not yet be able to completely free the mind from suffering, but if it arises, we say, hmm, I can quickly bring, bring the Dhamma to sort this out. I'd make an adjustment in my sila, or use some wisdom to reflect on this, or establish more mindfulness more consistently. Then the suffering will fade away. We can say, well, if that's happening, that's a sign of practice is probably going in the right direction. There's some results there. We don't have to put a name on it or a label on it. We just say, mm, generally, I can sort suffering out. I, f I can recognize suffering, what it causes, and I can find a remedy for it. If we find we're still stuck, the suffering keeps coming up longer, lasting longer, more disturbing, more of a problem then we have to really look maybe use the Four Noble Truths more to reflect on our experience and see where we need to adjust some aspect of our practice in the end that's what the that's what the how we can assess what's going on in our practice is how much of the mind is caught up in suffering and how much of it is free from suffering. How long suffering lasts, how overpowering it is, how overwhelming it is, or how easily we free ourselves from suffering, bring the mind back to calm, using all the aspects of the past, sila, samadhi, and panya.
we can reflect in this way over a period of time, just say over the last six months or the last year, or we can just reflect over just a few moments, sitting meditations. Some suffering comes up, well what do we do? How do we recognize it? How do we deal with it? Can we remedy it? We've all experienced peace in the past, the spaciousness of the mind where some mindfulness is present, wisdom is present. So we've tasted that once, we can taste it again. We have to keep applying the techniques, keep, keep applying the meditation techniques and the reflections. Anytime suffering is arising, we stop and ask, what should I do to deal with this? Whether you're in the middle of a meditation or you're just at your kuti or just walking around or involved in something in the monastery. Anytime you can bring up that reflection. Our aim is to have no abiding place for suffering in the mind. To be able to see suffering, its cause, and just let it go quickly. Even if it keeps returning, doesn't matter. As long as we know what to do, then we can be at, our, be at ease, be at peace in the practice. And that's the way you get more confidence, more happiness coming up. Even if there's still suffering can arise, at least you know what to do with it. It can't overpower you, overwhelm you. You know the right way to reflect, the right way to adjust your practice then you naturally get some confidence. And that's when we say you have a refuge. You can really see that the Buddhist path works. The teachings the Buddha gave really work for remedying suffering. If you've done it over and over again, well, confidence arises in the path more than anything else. Any other kind of remedy is just one a worldly sort of distraction some kind of temporary distraction which doesn't really solve the suffering. It just, in a way, it prolongs the agony, takes us away, takes us away from the path, and possibly even complicates things, prolongs the problem. But the more we use the path, the more confidence we gain in it, then the more we can really take it as a refuge. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.